This is your favorite podcaster, Romina, and you just tuned in to RM Podcast FL. Hello, my beautiful people, and welcome back to RM Podcast FL. This is your favorite podcaster, Romina, and I hope you guys are having a tremendous Tuesday or whatever day of the week you're listening to this episode on. Before we jump to today's interview, I want to remind everybody to go ahead and subscribe to connectwithromina.com. Again, connectwithromina.com. So this way you can always be up to date on all the new episodes that we launch every Tuesday. And make sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you're getting your podcast juice from. And as always, if you are listening from Apple Podcasts, go ahead and give us a five-star review as well as a short comment about how awesome we're doing and why not. Actually, comment on it, the number of episodes that you enjoyed the most from our show. And... Yes, we actually have the course coming out you soon, you guys. So go ahead and actually pre-order your sales love average course on connectwithromina.com slash courses. You would be able to actually access all the pre-order courses that we have available for everybody. So make sure to do that as well. And I don't want to waste more time. I actually want to jump to today's interview. Today's interview is with Ken Cloak. I'm really excited about this one because number one, we are talking to conflict resolution expert And when me and Ken actually did our pre-interview, because you guys know I do pre-interviews with all my guests, I came to find out Ken's actually international organization, Mediator Beyond Borders, was able to connect with partners Kosovo, which, as you guys know, Kosovo and Albania are very, very close to my heart. So we instantly became best friends. And then he ended up telling me that he was able to mediate funding for multiple organizations for partners Kosovo, as well as design a training program to help their top mediators. So at this point, I knew I had to bring Ken in the podcast as well as he has a lot of amazing things to say. We focus a lot about resolving relationship conflict, how social media is helping us or damaging us, type of questions we can ask to our partner. This way we would be able to know each other a lot more, how to negotiate and how to face our own biases and have those tough conversations sometimes. Ken actually shared with us as well a file of 100 questions that he wrote down. So this way, these questions can be used to have those open conversations with your partner or have those open conversations with loved ones. So I'll go ahead and actually attach all the questions on the article on connectwithromina.com. Definitely go ahead and check that out and look at a question or two or maybe a five or ten. And this way, go ahead and ask those questions to your partners and your friends so you guys can dive in and really get to know each other to a whole nother level because these questions are really, really great questions. I don't want to take any more time. I actually want you guys to enjoy the episode and give us a five-star review. Don't forget. I don't think I have anything else to say, but enjoy. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in to RM Podcast FL. Yes, this is your favorite podcaster, Romina, and we are here with some more knowledge for you guys. We say learn at least one new thing per episode, and today we actually have an international conflict resolution expert, Ken Clogg. Hi, Ken. How are you today? I'm terrific, Romina. How are you? I'm great. I'm blessed. Thank you so much. Before losing any time, I would love to pass on the mic to you to introduce yourself to the audience. Tell us a little bit, how did you go about having the career that you have right now? Uh, well, the career that I have is quite varied. I am a conflict 
resolver. And I work in a lot of different fields uh, with couples who are having difficulty in their relationship, with families, uh, with divorces, with neighborhood disputes, kids who commit crimes and their victims, in organizational conflicts inside of workplaces and organizations, and also in political organizations that are activists uh, in the community and even between nation states. I've been doing this now for 40 years, full-time, and it's absolutely gorgeous work. And I got into it, I would say, as a result of a series of things. One was I was working as a judge, but I found that I couldn't really do what I felt was just. I was too constrained by the process that wouldn't give people the ability to talk about what was real for them. A second was that I went through a terrible divorce and was a kind of victim of the legal process myself. A third was that I was selected to be the first judge on people's court. But I ended up mediating the conflict that they gave me and they fired me because they wanted somebody to lose. So they could interview the person afterwards about what it felt like to lose. But what I've learned in the course of this is that nobody has to lose in order for someone else to win. And that if that is the case, you've set the problem up incorrectly. That it is possible, for example, in a relationship for both people to be happy and feel satisfied with each other and have it not be competitive, not be adversarial. And if that can work in relationships, why can't it work between the heads of nation states? But it is relationship to relationship. It's just different. It's personal relationship and international relationship. So I would say the core values are like the, the methods are still kind of the same. Exactly. Exactly right. And people feel the same way about being treated badly, being spoken to disrespectfully, not having their interests recognized, being talked down to. All of those things make a difference to us, whether it's as an individual or as a part of a couple or as a political representative. So how important is it to maybe, let's stick with the relationships for a minute, to kind of bring up from your negotiables and non-negotiables. Like I do that, I have a list of my non-negotiables and my negotiables. So it's like, here's the deal. Either let's work it or not. How important is it for, for people to actually practice it or maybe even have it cleared in their mind that this is something that I'm okay to negotiate with, but this is like a big no-no? I think it's incredibly important because otherwise you send a false message that says that something is negotiable when it isn't. And there are actually a series of things that are not negotiable or ought not to be negotiable. One of those really ought to be dignity. One of them ought to be respect. One of them ought to be the ability to have your own ideas about whatever it is that is important to you and not feel that somebody has to give up their ideas in order to listen to yours. So those are examples of some things that are non-negotiables, but there are lots and lots of others and each person differs on them. What's important is to have the conversation about what is really important to you. So how can we stay open-minded and respectful whenever we have those deep conversations, um, even that being in a personal relationship or even that being like some, maybe in a meeting with somebody from a different culture? Like how can we keep that in mind that 
if they say no, it doesn't necessarily like don't take it personal. They're just saying no because they disagree with your opinion, but they don't they're not disputing you as a person. So if we define culture as a way of attributing meaning, in other words, different cultures have different meanings that they attach sometimes to the same things, then what we could at least imagine is that every conflict is cross-cultural. Every relationship is cross-cultural, except some of them are more culturally coherent than others. There may be a stronger cultural tradition. And here what we want to do basically is to find a kind of balance. But in all conflicts, we are trying to find a balance in what is actually a kind of razor's edge situation. That is, we're balancing at a place where there is no stability. We have to keep on balancing all the time. And the way that we do that is we have to be respectful of other people's history, their background, their ways of attributing meaning, and discover what those are. And at the same time, create a space in which it is possible for us to exchange cultural views and learn from each other and modify our cultures, improve our cultures. So not every culture has every answer to every question. And the way that we do that, for example, the way I do it in mediation, is I ask an opening question. What role would you like me to play in this conversation? And I will get a culturally informed answer. Mm -hmm. Another question I will ask is, what does that mean to you? And why do you have that meaning? Where does that meaning come from? And another question I could ask is, is this the first time this has ever happened to you? Or has this happened before? And if so, when? And who was the person who did this to you first? And now we have a much more interesting conversation. You're asking deep questions to get to the root of it. Mm -hmm. And I so, love how you're asking with the how or what and not why those questions, because why gets our defense mechanism up and we feel like we're being cornered if we get asked why? Well, a lot depends on our intention and mm -hmm. ask why. If it comes out of curiosity, that's one thing. But a close relative of curiosity is prying. And if it comes from prying, that means they don't really care about you. They just care to gain some advantage over you. But if they really care about who you are, what's happened to you, what you think, that's different. So here, there's, here's an example. There are three categories of questions mm -hmm. that I could ask the people who are tuning in right now. Category one, who is the oldest person on this broadcast and who is the youngest? Who's the tallest? Who's the shortest? Who lives the closest to downtown Chicago? Who lives the furthest away? And notice there's a single correct answer for everyone. Mm -hmm. Category two, how old are you? How tall are you? Where do you live? More specific. And now, and now there's a specifically correct answer for each person. Category three, what issues are you facing at whatever age you are at? What is important about those issues to you? What does your height mean to you? What did it mean to you growing up? What do you love about where you live? What do you not love? And now notice there are multiple correct answers for each person. Those are the questions we want to ask. I like how you broke it down like that. And what makes me think is those crazy tasks that we do sometimes 
I hate multiple choice testing. I'll just be honest. I love essay questions or I love like even for school assignments. I love it if it's like, hey, do research with this topic and I can just digest it and do my own thing. But like questionnaires like A, B, C, D, I hate those type of setups. Well, one reason is because they are asking you for an answer that is specific and is fixed and isn't particularly interesting. But there's a wonderful writer whose name is Susan Sontag who says the only interesting answers are the ones that blow up the question. Meaning what you get a chance to do with an essay is you get a chance to actually think out loud, to learn. Yeah. Um, so there's rote memorization, there is thinking, and then even beyond thinking there is wisdom. Do you, uh, let me ask you this, do you think social media has helped or is just making it even harder for us to have like those difficult conversations because everybody can hide behind a username, profile, but is it helping or is it damaging us more? Both. In the first place, it's helping because if you can imagine right now going through the COVID experience without Zoom, <laughs> it would be really much, much harder for us. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I can tell you as a mediator that people can hide behind their screens in ways that they can't in person, uh, that they will become much more open and vulnerable when they are with each other than they will be at a distance, even the electronic distance that we see on our screens. So, and in many ways, it actually is a, an, another kind of obstacle. Certainly with email, it's a very quick medium and therefore it's possible to say something that you don't really think about beforehand that you might not really want to communicate if you thought about it. But your name is also always attached to the emails. You are the author. So make sure you double and triple read the emails that you send out. Exactly. Especially living the te technological day and age, like everything is, once it's out there, once you put it, we'll be tracked down somehow, somebody, somewhere. It's safe, no matter if you delete it. So just kind of watch out, guys. <laughs> yeah. Now, personally, working sales for years and being very passionate about, about just creating relationships, as we all know, I do talk too much and I can be friends with anyone. But I found it interesting once I start getting into like learning body language and John Navarro's book, Everybody Knows What You're Saying, The FBI Body Language Expert. That's like one of my favorite books. And I think that's super important as a business development book, as well as just as an individual that runs a business. What would you say maybe it would be like an, one or two other subjects that people should definitely focus on to just develop themselves and become better entrepreneurs, better business owners, or better whatever profession they're at, or just better, you know, relationship builders? Well, in the first place, let me just reinforce what you're saying. Body language is an incredibly important way of understanding what someone means. But in order to understand it, you have to understand the different ways that culture expresses itself through body language. So people, people's bodies move differently in India than they do in Italy, than they do in France. And then there are a series of other ones. I would say the most important is emotional intelligence. That is to be able to figure out that all of the words that we are speaking have an emotional tone and an emotional meaning. 
and people are responding to those all the time. Your listeners are responding right now emotionally to what is being said, just at the simple level of I like what was just said or I don't like what was just said. That is an emotional exercise. But we don't read each other emotionally nearly as well as we need to. We have about half of our entire brain dedicated to emotion. And that's a lot of real estate uh, to be dedicated to this function if there isn't anything in it. Um, and there's an enormous amount in it. So for example, one of the pieces of research uh, that has been done shows that people who have had strokes in the emotional processing centers of their brains are unable to make decisions, simple decisions like what to wear, what potato to purchase in the supermarket. And because those decisions are based on which potato you like and which one you don't like or whatever. So emotions can be very, very helpful in making decisions provided that we don't get lost in them, but gain insight through our emotions and then are able to turn our emotions in the direction of problem solving. A second area that I think is incredibly important is what we call interest-based negotiation or collaborative negotiation or win-win negotiation. Figuring out how to engage with someone who is different from you. And the third one, I would say, is mediation. I think everyone should learn how to figure out what to do when they are totally and completely stuck and have no idea what to do, which is every single case that is mediated. So just for myself, I can tell you that 100% of the people who come to see me are totally stuck and have no idea what to do. And out of that 100%, somewhere around 95 to 98% become unstuck as a result of our conversation. And out of that 95 to 98% that become unstuck, about another 98% have no problems enforcing their agreements, even though I'm not the cop or the judge telling them what to do. How is this possible? And it isn't because of me, it's because of the process. Because we are talking about what is real. Mm -hmm. We're not disguising it. We're trying to actually bring out into the open the things that we have avoided talking about, as we have avoided talking about them as a nation. So before, let me ask you this, before you go to the mediation table, before you sit on the negotiation table, let's say the whole thing takes 100 hours, which is never standard, because every, every case is different, every situation is different. But let's assume it's 100 hours per case. How many hours would you say just go strictly on preparation and the back end before you sit at the table? This depends a little bit on what you define as preparation. But if your preparation includes developing the skills to be able to handle the conversation, making sure that you approach it with the right attitude, feeling calm in the presence of conflict, mm -hmm. being able to listen to people yell and scream at each other without getting plugged in yourself, then I would say probably a thousand hours for every hundred is spent in preparation. How do you as a mediator keep your cool or control your own emotion and become self-aware to become better at what you do? Well, if you try to control it, the fact that you're controlling it is sooner or later going to emerge and that's not going to be the best approach. If I ask the question, 
for example, was Mother Teresa invulnerable to suffering? I think the answer is no. She was infinitely vulnerable to suffering. So totally open to suffering that there was nothing inside of her for it to stick to. And if we apply the same approach to conflict, we can say that the best approach is to have nothing inside of yourself that the conflict can stick to. And I can tell you what the main thing is that it sticks to. Your judgments about yourself and about others. Our own biases. Our own biases. Exactly. That's, that's hard to negotiate sometimes with our own biases too. But fortunately, by doing this work, every single person that you encounter points out a little bias for you. Uh-oh, now I have to work on this one. Right? How, can, how can you point out a, a biased opinion to somebody without necessarily offending them, but making it more like a suggestion? Because sometimes people get defensive. So how can you like, let's say, for example, a biases of mine, let's just come up with my, I don't like Albanian people, even though I'm Albanian, let's just say how would you not necessarily criticize me, but help me see another perspective of it? There are a series of methods for doing this, exercises, essentially. Mm -hmm. One of them is to find somebody who is a part of that group. For you, it would be some Albanian person who you don't particularly like, who represents all of these characteristics. Mm -hmm. And sit down and have a conversation with them in which the person becomes larger than their stereotype in your mind. Because what you're actually creating is a kind of stereotype. You've taken a characteristic, you've blown it out of proportion, you've collapsed the person into the characteristic, you've eliminated all the complexity uh, and gone with something really way too simple for who this human being actually is. You've made it cruel and you've matched it to your own worst fears and your own self-judgments. Because it isn't the Albanian outside of you that matters. It is the words that you would apply to that Albanian inside yourself that gives rise to this. It is the externalization of your own internal dislike of yourself or parts of yourself or members of your family or whatever. So to say it a little differently, here is, uh, I just wrote something that is now on the web. It's called 50 Questions You Can Ask Friends and Relatives in Political Arguments. Okay. Uh, and there are a series of those. But one of the questions that we can ask is, for example, in a couple, what are the words and phrases that you use with each other that divide you? And what are the words or phrases that unite you? And why do you use one instead of the other? Here's another one. We're talking about political candidates now because we've just been through this election. So without mentioning the name of the political candidate that you supported, what values or principles do you believe that your candidate stands for? And then how could we use those values or principles in this conversation right now? So you're going to the actual core value and the bottom of the issue instead of superficially just mentioning names or mentioning a phenomenon. That's what I'm getting from those type of questions. That's one. Here's another one. This is really my favorite. What life experiences have you had? that have led you to feel so deeply and passionately 
about this issue. Instead of telling me just what you think, tell me who you are. Tell me what's happened to you. Tell me why this is important to you. Where do your beliefs come from? What do you think your beliefs might be if you had been born into a different set of circumstances, a different country, a different family, church, class? These are some really great questions, but I feel like not a lot of people are ready to answer this type of questions. No, but at the same time, these are deeply respectful. And when given an opportunity to really stop, and if you, if you get the right question, it'll stop somebody in their tracks. I will actually attach the link, you guys, on the show notes for this question, since the post just went okay. public. So this way, you guys would definitely be able to look at that for my audience, for the you know lazy listeners. It's tap away. I'll put it on the show notes, you guys. Um, I'm loving these questions because it's reminding me, uh, recently I finished the book, also 101 questions to answer before you get engaged. Not necessarily I'm looking to get engaged, but it's some really deep questions that are just making me know myself even more. Uh, towards like, you know, the, the root and the fundamentals of why I am who I am and why I think the way I think. And this type of questions, I feel like I should collect all of them and be able to just do deep soul searching and deep searching just for my person as well, too. Let me say this a little differently. One of the deep, fundamental, ongoing issues that we are faced with in our life is the relationship between self and other. Who are we and who are all those other people out there? Mm -hmm. uh, and we are constantly revising our who we are based on our interactions with other people. We are learning how to interact with people. We come with certain basics and then we are shaped in part by our experiences. And so what we want to find out is who are you really and what's happened to you that has led you to feel that way. For example, when I'm working with couples and trying to resolve their issues with each other, mm -hmm. I'll ask a question like, what are the primary issues that you fight about? What are the main things that you argue over? Money? How was money handled in your family of origin? How were conflicts handled? What is one thing that you have experienced from each other that you want never ever to experience again between the two of you? What is one thing that you would be willing to do to make this conversation work better for your partner? Would you like to know what she would like to ask you to do? Why don't you ask her? Those kinds of questions. And the purpose of it is to create an open, evolving conversation that lasts a lifetime. Because it takes that long to figure out who anybody is. It does. And sometimes we don't even know 100% who we are ourselves too. We learn more every day. <laughs> exactly right. Now, before we do jump to the last couple of questions, if you can share with the audience too, because last time we talked, I know I was like, I'm Albanian. And I got super excited when you told me about actually a partnership that you have with parties of Kosovo. So can you tell us a little bit about it? My Albanian audience out here, pay attention. This is where we become best friends. <laughs> Absolutely. It would be my pleasure, Romina. The first piece of information is that about maybe about 16 years ago, I started an organization called Mediators Beyond Borders. Mm -hmm. And the goal was to work with people in other countries to help develop their capacity to resolve conflicts themselves, consistent with their own cultures. 
And in the course of that, I was working with a friend who has since died. His name was Ray Schoenholtz, and he was a really wonderful man who started an organization called Partners for Democratic Change. And Partners was working in the former Soviet Union and in the Eastern Bloc to try to bring democratic change, which included the idea of creating a space in which people could talk to each other across their differences. That is a mediated space, mm -hmm. a space for collaborative negotiation. So I began working with some of those organizations, and one of those groups was called Partners Kosovo. And there's a woman who was the head of that organization who I worked with, who was quite amazing and had a really traumatic and difficult background uh, during the war and lost family members, as did many, many people, many Albanians and many people in Kosovo, which, as you all know, uh, has a very large Albanian population. And so the difficulty is, how do we get Serbs and Albanians talking to one another? And I remembered reading a wonderful novel by Ismail Kadari. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Ismail uh, Kadari, you're very close, yeah. Okay. Called The Elegy for Kosovo, which is about... Theologia e Kosovo, that's how you say it in Albanian. Ah, terrific, thank you. And it's about the, the various wars over Kosovo over the centuries, repeated wars over Kosovo. And what he, what he basically says is that there are a group of troubadours in the novel, but the problem is that the Serbian troubadours only know songs that are anti-Albanian. Uh, and the Montenegrins only know songs that are anti-Croatian, and the Croatians, etc. So now when they're united against the Turks, they don't know exactly what songs to sing because they have to find some songs that include all of them, and they don't know any of those songs. And to me, this was a great little metaphor for what the problem is in the Balkans. And now the question is, can we learn some of those songs? Can we write those songs together? Can we sing together about what we have in common? Because there is way more in common uh, between each of those different subgroups and now nations than there are differences. Uh, there are way more differences with France, for example, or Spain yeah. than there are with each other. Yeah, the so, Balkans are very, very similar, just the language changes. Yeah. We look the same, we cook the same, have the yeah. same traditions, yes. So I helped Partners Kosovo develop a grant proposal to receive funding for the work that they were doing and help promote several funding organizations to give them money. And also designed a training program to help their mediators build their skills in conflict resolution, specifically in working with one-on-one -on -one Serb Albanian conflicts mm -hmm. uh, or whatever, whoever it might happen to be. But those kinds of conflicts, how do we talk about these issues? And finding a kind of a common language, figuring out how to do that. As much as we can try, I hate to say it, and I hope I'm wrong, but I feel like that would be a discussion that will continue for years and years and years. So. Central. Maybe centuries. I hope yes. not. Maybe. I hope not. I hope I'm wrong. I never. I don't really like saying I hope I'm wrong, but I hope I'm wrong for this one. <laughs> no, I hope so too. 
Ken, I have a couple of questions before we get to the final question, which is my favorite one too. Where can people connect with you? If you can tell us a little bit through LinkedIn or website, any, any links you'd like to share? There's LinkedIn, there's Facebook. My website is just kencloak.com. Awesome. And then I'll attach the LinkedIn and the website again on the show notes, you guys. So just be a click away and tell Ken Romina sent you. What would be an ideal client for you? If somebody's like, this sounds amazing. I need a mediator, but I'm not sure if Ken would be the right one for me. What would be the ideal client for you? Right now, I would have two ideal clients. One is the Secretary General of the United Nations. And two is the Biden-Harris team. You heard that, guys? <laughs> but I don't have either of them. My other ideal clients are just ordinary people. Uh, everyday people who are experiencing difficulties and conflicts. What I'm trying to do right now is to write down the things that I've learned and communicate them so that other people can use them. So I've written a number of different books on conflict resolution, and I'm now writing a couple more. Is that the new project that you like to share with us that you're working on? Sure. I have two books that I'm working on. One is called Designing Workplaces. And it's a, a, a post-pandemic guide to how to create workplaces that take advantage of the things that we've learned during the pandemic. And the second one is called Conflict and Crisis. And it's about what we have learned in the, pande in, in the pandemic about conflict and also what we can do in response to potential catastrophes like the ones that are looming and waiting for us using conflict resolution skills to bring us into dialogue with one another and help us do joint problem solving. Love it. And then my last question, my favorite question here, I am biased about this one, I have to say. <laughs> I'm just intrigued to like everybody, like to the guests answer for this one. What is your personal definition of success? Uh, well, let me start with Winston Churchill's definition of success, which is in quotes, proceeding from failure to failure with undiminished enthusiasm. Now, my definition of success has to do with the fact that what success means is being willing to fail, and what failure means is being over-preoccupied with success. So we have to begin with the idea, success at what and why. What do you want to be successful doing? And why is that important to you? Why do you want to succeed at that? And is that the best that you can do? And now what we will see, I think, is that we have within us already all of the elements that we need in order to be successful, which is a willingness to actually try something even though we know we're going to fail. If you think about success as learning to ride a bicycle, you're going to fall down a few times before you figure out how to keep yourself up. And I think the same is true everywhere. So for me, in my work, every person that I meet with, I have to accept the fact that I could fail, uh, that I could not help them in some deep way. But that actually is my success, my willingness to accept that, and my willingness to dedicate whatever I have learned from my failure to those who will come after. Love it. Anything else that you'd like to share with our audience? Maybe something that I didn't ask you or any last message? 
Yeah, I would say the most important thing is to not just not only not be afraid of conflict, but to actually see every conflict that you experience as a little arrow pointing your attention directly at what you most need to learn in order to grow and evolve and become more successful as a person. Change the perspective of it, look at it from what can I learn from this instead of, you know, thinking, oh my goodness, what's happening to me? Exactly right, Romina. Change the perspective. I love it. Thank you so much, Ken, for being a part of RM Podcast FL. I thank you for your time. And to my audience, make sure to tune in next Tuesday again for your weekly dosage of knowledge. I hope you learn at least one new thing per episode. Well, this one episode, you actually should learn a lot of things. So go ahead and listen to it. Click on the links on the show notes, you guys, to connect with Ken. Let him know that you listened to our show and you loved it. And also, don't forget to check out our actual videos. We're doing interviews now with videos too as well. So no matter where you get your podcast juice from, go ahead and hop in on Facebook, YouTube, and our website so you can see our pretty faces too during this interview, you guys. Thank you, Ken, for being a part of the show again. Thank you, Romina, for having me. Absolutely. And to the audience, we'll see you guys next week. Oh, <laughs>